Greetings and welcome to the Eda at Lou's podcast, a gustatory adventure in culinary delights. I am your host, Lisa Beisinger, and in this podcast, I cook up recipes from the past and taste them while talking about the history and science of food. This upcoming Saturday is April 23rd, 2016. It is the 452nd anniversary of Shakespeare's birth and the 400th anniversary of his death. So we'll be honoring the bard with two dishes from the Elizabethan slash Jacobian periods. The recipes for this episode are from a reprint of The Good Housewife's Jewel by Thomas Dawson, which dates to 1596 to 1597. This book was published in two parts with all of the recipes jumbled together. For the 2002 reprint, the editor organized the recipes by methods of cooking. The boiling section is the largest, since at the time it was the easiest form of cooking, and the baking section is mostly comprised of recipes for meats and fruits cooked in pastry. So I'm using that as inspiration for the recipes that I chose. I chose two dishes for this episode, peas pottage, which is a boiled dish, and chicken in a caudal, which is chicken in pastry, in a pie crust. My first recipe, the peas pottage, takes a long time to cook, so I begin it this morning about 10 o'clock. It's now just before 6 o'clock p.m., so it's been cooking all day. One thing that's important to note about recipes from this period is that they are not very specific and were often very complicated. Housekeepers and servants would produce the most sensible versions of the recipes that they could. As Colin Spencer states in British Food, An Extraordinary Thousand Years of History, what is certain is that books of recipes then and now do not necessarily tell what people eat, only what they aspire to eat, or what they imagine they should be eating, so that their wealth and position will be envied by their neighbors. My first dish for this episode is peas pottage. The word pottage comes from the French potage, which means something cooked in a pot. Through the Tudor and Elizabethan periods, the words porridge and pottage meant pretty much the same thing. They were both semi-liquid dishes made from grains or pulses. As far as grains go, oatmeal was the most common base for pottage up in northern Britain and in Scotland. And although it is now called porridge, the dish remains a popular breakfast food in those areas today. In the South, barley, wheat, and rye were used. Peas pottage was eaten all over Britain and was made primarily from dried peas. Peas pottage was economical, ubiquitous, filling, and nutritious. In the Middle Ages through Elizabethan times, every social strata would have eaten some form of peas pottage. However, the poorer levels of society would depend on this dish quite a bit more than the richer classes. In many cases, they would eat it every day. The pottage was started early in the day after breakfast so that it could simmer and be ready in time for supper. Dried peas and ham stock or water were added to the pot and other ingredients may be added at this time or added throughout the day. What was added to the pottage depended greatly on how much money the family had. 
For the poorer classes, they would eat pottage plain or with a little bacon or ham if they had it. For the slightly more well-off family, other ingredients may be added, including root vegetables, cabbage, leeks, meats such as lamb, bacon, or veal. And for families that could afford it, spices such as cinnamon, nutmeg, or saffron would be added. Throughout the year, the dish would vary considerably depending on what the family had at hand. In the spring, lamb or veal might be added because this would be when the young animals were getting killed in order to get rennet for cheese making. Chicken may be added in the summer and ham in the fall and winter. Similarly, seasonal herbs and vegetables could also be added. So while peas pottage was consistently eaten throughout the year, it was less boring than it seems. Bacon and ham were the most common additions to the pottage. Because bacon was heavily salted already, the peas, when they were cooked, were cooked without any salt. So everything kind of balanced out nicely with the salty bacon and the bland peas. Most people have heard of the nursery rhyme, peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in the pot nine days old. This refers partly to the ubiquity of the dish and the fact that it was eaten for days in a row, but it also refers to the propensity for people to leave leftover food in the pot overnight. The next day's food would just be dumped on top of the cold leftovers from the day before. The following is the recipe that I'm using as the foundation for my peas pottage. Take a quart of white peas or more and seed them in fair water close until they do cast their husks, the white cast away as long as they will come up to the top. And when they be gone, then put the peas, two dishes of butter and a little verjuice with pepper and salt and a little fine powder of March. And so let it stand till you will occupy it and serve it upon sops. You may see the porpoise and seal in your peas, serving it forth two pieces in a dish. So what does this mean? And how have I adapted the recipe? Essentially, what Dawson is saying is that I should soak the peas so that the skins come loose. I'm using yellow split peas because that's what I could find. These particular peas came from an Indian grocery store and they already have their skins removed. So I can skip that step. Next, I added a little bit of butter and I was supposed to add some verjuice. Verjuice is a semi-fermented juice of unripe grapes, sour apples, or other tart fruit. It's not quite vinegar and it's not quite wine. It's somewhere in between and it is very tart. I wasn't able to find verjuice, so I started to brainstorm for some suitable replacements and settled on using cranberry and ginger kombucha. This might not sound like something that would be used in Elizabethan times, but I settled on using this particular drink because it is A, very tart, B, fermented, but tastes somewhere between the flavor of wine and vinegar, and it isn't overly sweet. Plus, it contains a spice that was available at the time. Fine powder of March is just pulverized spices. They would use maybe cinnamon and cloves, mace or nutmeg. I also don't have porpoise or seal available since they don't carry them at the local Kroger. So I'm going a bit more traditional with my add-ins. I had a little ham left over from the ham and bananas hollandaise episode. 
So I'm adding that. And I'm also adding some other ingredients that I had on hand, leeks, cabbage, and carrots. The spices that I use are a little bit of cinnamon and a little bit of ginger. There is one other thing in the recipe that I haven't addressed yet. It says, and so let it stand till you will occupy it. So let it cook until you're ready to eat it and then serve it upon sops. Sops are just pieces of bread. You serve it upon some bread. My second recipe is also from The Good Housewife's Jewel. It is called chicken in a coddle, which is just another way of saying chicken pie. I chose this dish because it would be the complete opposite end of the spectrum from the peas pottage. If pottage was an everyday food for the lower class, this would be a food only eaten by the upper class or eaten on rare occasions among the lower classes. And here is the recipe. To bake chicken in a coddle, season them with salt and pepper and put them in butter. And so let them bake. I'm using pre-cooked chicken. When they be baked, boil a few barberries and prunes and currants and take a little white wine or verjuice and let it boil. Put in a little sugar and set it on the fire a little and strain in two or three yolks of eggs into the wine. When you take the dish off the fire, put the prunes, currants, and barberries into the dish and then put them all together into the pie of chickens. I have all of my ingredients ready. My chicken is already cooked, as I mentioned. I have my barberries, prunes, and currants already with a little bit of pumpkin pie spice and a little bit of sugar. So I'm just going to get those started cooking. And then I need to add in a little bit of white wine. I'm just using enough to cover up my fruit in the bottom of the pan. Really what I'm doing here is I'm using the wine to hydrate my dried fruit. Wow, that came up to a boil really quickly. Turn it down just a bit so that it can simmer and cook off some of the alcohol and a little bit of the water. So I want it to cook down before I add my egg yolk. And the egg yolk will help to thicken up the juice a little bit. And I gotta tell you, the cooking fruits smell delightfully Christmassy. So all in all, it worked out that I used about two tablespoons of barberries, two tablespoons of currants. I used four prunes that I cut into quarters and about, I'd say maybe three ounces of wine. Tablespoon of sugar and a quarter tablespoon of pumpkin pie spice. Now I'm making a very small quantity of this recipe. I have about three quarters of a cup of cubed chicken. And now it is time to make my pastry. Oh, I forgot to mention where I got my barberries from. Now, I'd never heard of barberries. Apparently they're really common in Persian cuisine. So I went to the Middle Eastern grocery store first. It took three stops, but eventually I did find a container of them. The pie crust recipe also comes from The Good Housewife's Jewel. Dawson recommends to make a pie. First, parboil your flesh and press it. And when it is pressed, season it with pepper and salt while it is still hot, then lard it. Make your paste with rye flour. It must be very thick or else it will not hold. And when it is seasoned and larded, lay it in your pie. 
Then cast on it, before you close it, a good deal of cloves and mace, beaten small, and throw upon that a good deal of butter, and so close it up. You must leave a hole in the top of the lid, and when it hath stood for two hours in the oven, you must fill it as full of wine vinegar as you can, then stop the hole as close as you can with an oast, and set it in your oven again. Your oven must be very hot as the first, that your pies will keep a great while. The longer you keep them in the oven, the better they will be. When they be taken out of the oven and almost cold, you must shake them between your hands and set them with the bottom upward. When you set them into the oven, be well aware that one pie touches not the other by more than a hand's breadth. Remember also to let them stand in the oven after the vinegar be in two hours or more. So essentially, I'm making a pie crust with rye flour, butter, and water. So I'm going to start. I have a half cup of rye flour, just guesstimating here. And I have two tablespoons of butter. I'm going to add a little bit to that, of that to my berries. So I have my rye flour, two tablespoons of butter added to the half cup of rye flour. Is that too much butter? Is it too little? I don't know. But I'm going to mush that around with my fingers. I'm going to pause here because I just had to turn off my fruit. It's starting to get a little too cooked down. I need to add in my egg yolk, which I'm going to do slowly so it doesn't curdle on me. That looks like enough egg. I probably used about half an egg yolk. And I'm also going to mix my chicken into the fruit. And now back to my pie crust. I want to add just enough water to bring everything together. This rye flour is a little different to work with than, than wheat flour. It doesn't quite want to hold the water and it keeps crumbling on me. You know, this is so hard to work with. I think I need to let it chill a little. That might help it out a bit. So I'm going to let it rest in the fridge for 20 minutes or so. So I have my chicken all cooked, my fruits all done, everything is combined. I'm letting my rye pastry chill out in the fridge for a little bit. So while we're waiting, let's talk a bit about the food that was eaten during this period. Following the dissolution of the monasteries during Henry VIII's reign, the crown redistributed the wealth seized from the church. Some of that money trickled down to the middle class. In many ways, food became a way of demonstrating wealth among the middle class. As Colin Spencer states in British Food, An Extraordinary Thousand Years of History, it was an age of social aspiration where emulation of foods eaten by the elite could be pursued, but this food was adapted to their own particular needs. As I alluded to in the peas pottage section, there was also a lot of difference between how the gentry ate and how their household and poorer neighbors ate. One common denominator, however, was ale and beer. Everyone drank ale and beer, since often well water was contaminated. It just wasn't safe to drink. When the grains for the ale were boiled, it killed off a lot of the harmful bacteria and the alcohol in the final product would keep the ale sterile for at least a little while. People in Shakespeare's time would drink all day. 
drinking weak ale during the day and then stronger ale in the evenings. Now, while every social class drank ale and beer, the upper classes would also drink wine. So let's talk about the day-to-day -day eating habits of people in Britain at this time. The Lord would eat a leisurely breakfast of white bread, three meat dishes, three fish dishes, and wine or ale around six or seven in the morning. Breakfast was a much more modest affair for the peasant. It would be eaten at sunrise and would consist of dark bread and weak ale. The contents of the bread would depend on the wealth of the peasant. A peasant who had a fairly good income and a bit of land might eat bread made of barley, rye, and if they were quite well off, a little wheat was mixed in. For those with less money, bread would be made with beans, peas, and oats. If a harvest was particularly bad, they might even add acorns to the bread. For the gentry, lunch was the second most extravagant meal of the day. It was eaten between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. A lord would usually have three courses, but each course would have between four or six courses within it. There would be fish and meat dishes, as well as wine and ale. The peasant would eat a lunch of bread and cheese out in the field. If available, they might also have a little bit of meat included in the lunch. The peasant would also carry a flask of ale out into the fields to drink throughout the day. The evening meal for the Lord was eaten between 6 and 7 in the evening. In composition, it was similar to dinner, but it might contain some more unusual or extravagant dishes. For the peasant, supper was eaten towards sunset. As mentioned earlier, the meal would vary throughout the seasons, but would usually consist of some kind of pottage be it vegetable, grain, or peas pottage. If the family was wealthy enough, there might be some fish or meat available. Like other meals, bread and ale were also served. People in the middle class ate well. Their meals were more modest than the meals of the lords and upper classes, but less Spartan than those of the poorest peasants. The middle class would eat eel, rabbits, game birds, if they were permitted to hunt them, because they had to ask the lord of the land and for permission to hunt on their land. Pork, lamb, mutton, veal, and beef were also eaten. In order to bolster the fishing industry and invigorate coastal communities, Queen Elizabeth had instituted a rule that no meat should be eaten on Fridays or during Lent. Now this was a rule that was in place when the Catholics were still in charge of the church in England, but when they got kicked out during the reign of Henry VIII, that rule got a little squishy. So Queen Elizabeth reinstituted it not only to help the fishing industry, but she was also doing it partly for selfish reasons because having a strong fishing industry and strong coastal communities meant that she had more people to recruit for the Navy. So since this rule was instituted on Fridays and days during Lent, meat dishes for everyone at all levels of society would be replaced by fish. Compared to today, chickens weren't consumed very often because they were often seen as more valuable for their eggs than cooked on the dinner table. A few male chickens would be kept around to protect the hens and they were encouraged in their role in egg fertilization. But the rest of the roosters would be called for the dinner table or the market. Hens who had reached the end of their productive egg-laying life, around two to four years, would also be sold or eaten. 
Among peasant farmers, pigs were slaughtered in the fall, so the farmer wouldn't have to feed all of them through the winter. Offal from the pigs was eaten immediately because it wouldn't keep very well. But most of the flesh was preserved by salting and smoking. Now I'm going to pause here again and check on my pastry. Oh, that feels much nicer. Hopefully it won't be as crumbly anymore. It is a little bit crumbly. Nope, it needs more water. One thing about doing this is that, you know, I'm used to recipes that are fairly thorough or recipes that I create myself. These recipes are very vague and they're actually very vague for a good reason. First off, printing was expensive. So they couldn't do the detailed recipes as cheaply as we do today. But also women in the household would have been doing this their entire life. They would have been watching their mom. And while I have watched my family cook for my entire life and I've cooked a good bit, this is actually something that's fairly foreign to me. I've never made a pastry crust out of rye flour. There we go. I think I have it at a consistency where it will stay together fairly well. Attempt number three to roll. I think it's a good sign that it's starting to stick to the rolling pin. Rolled this out to about a quarter of an inch, between a quarter and an eighth. The top crust doesn't have to be quite as thick as the bottom crust since it's not a huge part of the structure. So I'm going to shape it around a tumbler that looked to be about the size that I wanted that I've also wrapped with plastic wrap. That way it'll be easier to pull off. Now you may be asking yourself at this point, well, Lisa, why aren't you just using a pie tin? Wouldn't that make life easier? Well, pie tins really didn't exist at this point. They didn't come about until about the Industrial Revolution, or at least they were more affordable during the Industrial Revolution. I'm gonna put my chicken in the bottom half chicken and fruit in the bottom half. The top crust is on the pie. I'm going to make a pathetic attempt at crimping the edges. Just going to put a hole in the top for steam to escape, although there are plenty of holes in the top already. Patch up one of those holes. So I'm going to let that cook in the oven at 400 degrees Fahrenheit for about a half an hour. Now, I know that Dawson said that it's supposed to cook for two hours and then you add the vinegar and then you cook it for two more hours. But mine is quite small. It's probably less than a quarter of the size of what he's thinking. So I think I might be able to get away with cooking it for just an hour. So what I'll do is cook it for a half hour, put in the vinegar, and then cook in another half hour. Now, one thing that I'd like to clear up about food in this time is that it's often believed that meat was highly spiced at this time to hide the flavor of meat that had gone off. For the most part, this is untrue, especially out in the countryside where they didn't have a whole lot of extra money to be throwing around on spices. First, most meat would have been eaten within a few days of slaughter. Pork and fish would have been carefully preserved for later consumption so that it didn't spoil, so that it didn't taste bad, so you didn't have to hide anything. Second, the spices were expensive for most people and were thus used sparingly. Most spices at the time came from the Far East and were thus seen as precious, 
If a person could afford spices, they could probably afford fresh meat or at least well-preserved meat. Heavily spiced meat was an example of conspicuous consumption. For the rich, they would serve heavily spiced food as a way of demonstrating their wealth to their guests. But most people in the peasant class would save their spices for the Christmas season, which was celebrated for a full 12 days. So they'd save it and then carefully parcel it out over those 12 days. Some people would save up all year to have enough money to put aside for their Christmas spices. And in a way, this tradition of having spiced things in the fall and winter carries on today. We save our heavily spiced foods, spiced in the sense of cinnamon and nutmeg and mace and cloves. We save those for the fall and early winter, what many people call pumpkin spice season. It's a tradition that still carries on, even though we might not realize why. During this time, there was a huge rise in literacy, due in part by the invention of the printing press. Among the first books printed were cookbooks. This allowed regular people the opportunity to emulate their social betters even more easily. In addition to the cookbooks that were published commercially, people also recorded their own recipes and passed them down through the generations. The most common arable crops that were grown were wheat, barley, rye, oats, beans, and peas. Buckwheat and lentils were also grown in smaller quantities, but they were mostly reserved for livestock. They were used whenever they wanted to fatten up livestock really quickly, or they were used as famine foods for people. Buckwheat was occasionally added to bread. Carrots, parsnips, salad greens, fruits, peas, and beans were popular in the markets of London, but vegetables in the New World, which were brought over late in Queen Elizabeth's reign, were suspect. People were especially dubious about potatoes and tomatoes because of their relation to the deadly nightshade family. Other foods eaten at the time included cabbages, radishes, cucumbers, onions, olives, and mushrooms. Sweet potatoes were introduced by Sir John Hawkins in the second half of the 16th century, and by the end of the century, recipes were recorded for their use. Aphrodisiac properties were attributed to them, and they were referred to in Troilus and Cressida, as well as the Merry Wives of Windsor. At this point, most people had ovens in their homes. However, prior to the Elizabethan period, communal ovens were used. Ovens of the time were large stone structures with a half-circle opening in them, about chest height. The ovens were heated by lighting a faggot, a bundle of wood, in the oven. This wood was left to burn until the oven was hot, and then the ashes and embers from the wood were quickly swept out onto the stone floor and onto the feet of the people who were doing the sweeping. Before the oven could cool, bread and pies were loaded in as quickly as possible. Then the opening was sealed closed with slabs of stones to make sure that the heat was sealed in. There wasn't anything to heat the oven once the embers were swept out. That's why they had to work so quickly. Because they had to clean out the ashes and embers so quickly, the bottoms of anything that was cooked in that oven would be coated in ash. So they would slice the bread horizontally rather than vertically like we do today. The upper crust would go to the wealthy landowner 
and the ash-covered bottom would go to his lowest servants. That is why the upper class is often called the upper crust today. Well, I think that's enough history. I'm going to let my food finish cooking, and I'll be back later for the tasting. And we're back. As a reminder, I made two recipes this episode. The first recipe was peas pottage, which I have in a bowl right here beside me. I'm also in the living room this time, so the there's not as much noise going on. I just pulled the second recipe out of the oven. It was chicken in a coddle. It, I think it needs to chill a little bit before I cut it. So I figured I'd try the peas pottage and then I'd cut it and see how that turned out. So without further ado, I'm gonna try some peas pottage. I used the recipe from the Good Housewife's Jewel as the basis for my recipe. However, I did have quite a few changes. I used a half cup of yellow split peas, one cup of water, the white part from one leaf, a little bit of kombucha instead of verjuice, some cabbage and carrots, about a quarter of a cabbage and two carrots, a touch of cinnamon and a little bit of ginger, a bit of pepper, and a couple of pieces of turkey ham. I, I don't see any reason why this would be terrible. It's fairly thick. It was cooking for nearly 10 hours, so the peas have disintegrated their, their mush, which I suppose is right about where you want it to be. It's a little bit bland. I should have put a little bit of either some more ham in it or some more salt. I also don't think I put enough kombucha in it. It needs a little bit of a tang. The peas are so rich and thick and flavorful that it almost needs something to cut through that richness. But all in all, it's actually a pretty good dish. I would tweak it a little. I'd add a little bit more salt. The ham didn't add much to the party. I probably didn't put enough in. I kind of wonder if I put some of that wine vinegar in it, how that would taste. That's actually better. I think I should have used malt vinegar instead of red wine vinegar because now it's reminding me a bit of mushy peas from when I got fish and chips over in England. And mushy peas are so good with a little bit of malt vinegar on them. I'm thinking that would have actually really helped this out. But the wine vinegar is helping quite a bit. Not too bad. And now for the chicken in a coddle. I just cut the, I cut the pie, which is probably about three inches in diameter, into four pieces. So I'm just going to have one quarter of it. The bottom is not soggy. However, the crust was a little tough whenever I was cutting through it. And it cracked a good bit as it was baking. However, not too much liquid leaked out. I was afraid when I put the vinegar in that all of the liquid would just drain out instantly, but it stayed in there pretty well. It smells a bit like Christmas, a bit like mince pie and baking turkey. It tastes a bit like Christmas. I almost wish I had put less chicken in it and more fruit. For much of the history of what we call mincemeat pie and what in England they call mince pie, Mincemeat pie was actually made with meat. It was ground lamb or ground beef 
and fruits were added and spices and and liquor were all added to it and cooked and over time the amount of fruit went up and the amount of meat went down and this was because the dried fruit for the dish became more affordable and spices became more affordable so that people could afford to put more spices and fruit into the pie and now we get to today where there's no meat in the pie at all it's all fruit this reminds me a lot of mincemeat pie but what mincemeat pie used to be back in the middle ages when it had more of a meat content and I wonder if that's part of the reason why I'm craving a little bit of extra fruit because I'm associating it with mincemeat pie, which I love. It's a little dry. And it may have been because I didn't put enough wine in when I was boiling my fruit. It might also be because the chicken is twice cooked at this point. The chicken is kind of overcooked. I haven't actually tried my crust yet. It is, it is a little tough. It's falling apart. It tastes good enough. Reminds me a bit of rye crisp crackers but that's because it's made out of rye. And it's a little tough because it doesn't have as much gluten in it as regular pie crust. Plus it's not flaky because the butter was soft when I mixed it in, but it's not bad. I'm going to be eating this again for the next few days, so I'm not dreading it. The bottom of my pie is not soggy. Mary Berry from the Great British Bake Off would be proud. This was a really fun episode. It was nice getting to know some of the foods that Shakespeare might have eaten, especially as we approach his birthday. And as for these recipes, they were really quite okay. I mean, they're not exactly the flavors that we're used to. Yeah, split yellow peas are used in a lot of ethnic foods, and I've eaten them tons of times at Indian restaurants and at Ethiopian restaurants, not having those spices to kind of bolster it up made it taste very different than than what I would have at an Ethiopian restaurant or at an Indian restaurant. Not to say that it was bad, it was just different. Similarly, the chicken pie was quite lovely. I do wish I had a little bit more spice, but I was being very conservative with the spice. But all in all, I would try these again, I like, and I'd like to explore these as flavors in the American palate the modern American palette. Hi, this is Lisa from the future chiming in to add something before Lisa in the past closes out the episode. It's a few days later and I just had the last of the chicken in the coddle for lunch and I ate it cold. It was really good cold. And it did mention in the recipe that it should be served cold. So that was the ticket. The chicken didn't taste as overcooked or didn't seem as overcooked. And the fruit flavors came through really nicely. There still wasn't quite enough spice, but all in all, it was really delicious cold. Now I'm going to throw it back to past Lisa. You have been listening to the Eat It Lose podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed what you heard. You can find us on Facebook at Eat At Lose The Podcast. You can find me on Twitter Lisa Beisinger, at Lulu234, I believe. And our website, where I'll be posting pictures, is eatatluz.com. E-A-T-A-T-L-U-S dot com. And until next time, 
I hope that you have many great culinary adventures. Goodbye.